0: You're listening to the Citrus Church Podcast. Now, here's the message. Uh, and as they're heading out, I just want to take another minute just to welcome those who have joined in online. Maybe someone shared this in their news feed and you're tuning in for the first time. Uh, whether online or in person, don't forget to jump over to todayatcitrus.org. You can find anything that you might need there to get connected. Um, but thanks to our worship team for leading us this morning. and um, At least warming up our spirits if the rest of our bodies can't get there yet. So uh, this week, what we are doing is we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Genesis. Uh, And what we have been looking at over the last couple of weeks is some of the foundational elements, not just of the Bible, but some of the foundational elements of of the idea of how God works in the world. Um, So maybe you're just catching up. Don't worry. It's not like you needed to know everything that goes before. Uh, My hunch is you might know some of the things that go before, at least in the beginning of Genesis what we're going to do today is we're going to lay a foundation of how God will work with people just from the very beginning. And so in the beginning, there's this question mark of how will God motivate people? How will God motivate us to do what what God wants us to do, what God has called us to do? And I think that's an important question because there's lots of different ways to motivate people. Uh, And I want to just invite you to think for yourself, what is the thing or things that motivate you? I jotted down like a list of of six of them here. Um, Perhaps you're motivated when someone extends trust to you. Someone says, you know, I trust you to do this. And you say, okay, like this is on me. I can do this. Uh, Maybe you're motivated when you feel inspired. And you feel that sense of, this is bigger than me, or, or, or God is with me in this, and that is what's going to push me ahead. I know for some of you, you're motivated by a challenge. And I know for some people, all you need to do is to be told, you can't do this. And that's all you need to know, right? <laughs> I see some folks looking at the people next to them. <laughs> but that idea of Someone else says you can't, or you're not allowed to, or that's not available or open to you, is all you need to hear to say, then that's what I'm doing. And I think that's an important concept because there's things that motivate us. And the question is, how will God motivate people? How will God begin to motivate people? And so to catch us up, we're going to be looking at chapter 3 this morning in Genesis um, but at this point in the chapters 1 and 2, Genesis begins with a world in a time where there was just chaos, and that chaos has been ordered, and it has been balanced, and it has been declared very good by God. Humanity has been made in the image of God and has been uh, given the task, the job, the responsibility of being stewards of all that was around them. Stewards of their relationships, stewards of the creation, stewards of the world. And of course, if we uh, read a little bit further along in the Bible, and if we think about where we are today in the world, we might wonder to ourselves, though I think we know the answer, how did we get from this season of, of order, this time when God says it's good, to where we are today, or where we are in chapter 3 of Genesis? Genesis? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning, because chapter 3 of Genesis lays out some of the foundational ideas of, of how we got from, from there to here. And it's going to begin to lay the rest of the foundation. So last week, we talked about how God is one who brings order into chaos, and orders the chaos of our life. This week, we're going to talk about God's continual presence with us flawed humans, Next week, we'll continue this idea with, with our responsibility that we have towards each other. Uh, but this week, I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. So uh, if you have a Bible and are following along, I invite you to do that. Uh, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, uh, going through 15. It says, The woman said to the snake, We may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious fruit and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. That sounds familiar. The Lord God said to the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The snake tricked me and I ate. The Lord God said to the snake, because you did this, you are the one cursed out of all the farm animals, out of all the wild animals. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat every day of your life. I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. And this is one of those passages, and I recognize that for many we can read the story of Genesis and some We'll read it as as fact. Others will read it as as storytelling. Others will read it in different ways, too. But I think that we can all look at a scripture like this and begin to see this is where the blame game starts. This represents so well how we tend to respond to conflict as humans. When someone comes to us and we say, it wasn't my fault. They told me to do it. And then the they, that's blamed says, well, it wasn't my fault. They told me to do it. I've never blamed a farm animal, I've never blamed a snake, but now I'm beginning to think to myself, maybe I can offload some of the things I do wrong onto the animals that I see. Like, it wasn't my fault, it was our goldfish, right? Right, we begin to see how this sounds, like we begin to see how this sounds in this way, but I mean, if we're honest, this is what we do. And I think we can understand what humanity is beginning to feel at this point, because They recognize they are in trouble, and from a very beginning stage, they believe that because they have done something wrong, that God intends to punish them. That's their thought. God is coming to punish us. So here at the beginning, we see something foundational, that that God gives humans the freedom of choice. And God asked these first humans to trust all that he'd given to them, but also to trust the no's, the boundaries, the limits that he also imposed. The freedom that they had pointed to trust and responsibility that God had given to them. And we can understand that, that pain and, and brokenness and evil in the world are, are not God's fault. But because we as humans just make decisions sometimes, and maybe we don't know whether this thing is a yes or a no, or maybe we just choose to go this way because... It's what we want to do in the moment. And I think that this is why we can see it told in a story form. This is why we say things like, sin is what separates us from God and from each other. Because here there is a relationship between God and humanity, and because of humans' choices, that was broken and changed. And I got to thinking, you know, perhaps... Perhaps at chapter 3, that could have been the end of God's human experiment. Like we made it this far, clearly it's not going to go maybe where God thought or hoped that it could have gone. But also wonder too if God knew more than we might know. If God in creating humans and giving us the free will choice knew that we would choose the right, the good, the pure, the holy, but that we would also choose the other ways. I believe that God knew that at some point we would choose, that they would choose what was bad for us. Maybe it's because sometimes the bad seems good or we're not sure in the moment what a decision might be or we thought that God was keeping something from us and we just needed to know what it was. I mean, the truth is we give, as they did, any number of reasons to ourselves to say to God, you know, I know I shouldn't have But, but. And I wonder if in that moment they had this image and this concept that when God came to them in the garden that there was this divine hand about to slap them. There would be this divine retribution for what they did wrong. And if they felt that, I think it's because most of us feel that too. I don't know if it really even matters what kind of home you grew up in. You could have grown up in the best home, but we have this idea in our head that God is out looking to punish humanity for what we do wrong. And us, myself included, a lot of times we live our lives from that place of, oh no, God's going to punish me for this. And so what we see here in chapter 3 is not just the truth that humans get it wrong and we've gotten it wrong from the beginning, that we make bad choices from the beginning. What I really want us to see is how God responds to that. Because I think it changes what Adam and Eve, what humanity, what you and I sometimes subconsciously expect. The man says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked and I hid. That's been the response of humans throughout history is that when we do something wrong, we try to hide, either, either tangibly either by spiritually ignoring God, either by trying to kind of cover things up, or sometimes just by saying, like, it wasn't my fault, it was them. Trying to shift the blame over. And so the point of the story here, sometimes it's it's shifted over the years, and and I've heard this this preached several times too, perhaps you have too, that this becomes a story to tell us about how Uh, one gender is inferior, about how women are different than men, about how a snake is despicable. It's been used as a story to say that one is better than the other. And I think that's a misreading of what God was trying to do in this moment. What if, instead of trying to blame others when we're attacked, what if, if not trying to oppress someone else, What if instead of being scared of what could happen, what if we look at this story with fresh eyes and begin to see that what God was doing in here was not looking to punish them, looking to be with them in that moment and looking to do something, in fact, that was redemptive? And that's what got me excited as I looked at Genesis chapter 3 this week, was what we see in Genesis 3 is a picture of deep intimacy between God and humanity. Of course, that was there before the, quote, fall, before things went wrong. But what it tells us, it tells us that at the time of the evening breeze, you might remember last week we talked about how the breath of God, the wind of God, is what moved over creation. And that that word for the wind of God is ruach, it's spirit. It's the same word that we use for Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is understood as the breath, the wind, the wind of God that hovers over and orders the chaos of our lives. And here we see that same wind, that evening breeze that cools them down. Now imagine to yourself where this story might have been set in, this this arid desert-type region of the world, a place where it is hot and arid. And all of a sudden, the presence of God brings a cool, refreshing breeze. Even before God has begun to speak or interact with them, we can already sense that this is going to be a different interaction than they and we might have expected. God shows up in this space seeking communion with creation, seeking to be present with the people. This is a really important point. Because the verb here doesn't suggest that God just happened one day on a whim to think, oh, well, I'm going to go wander in the garden and see how people are doing. The verb suggests that this was something habitual, daily, regular. The point here is to see that it was a regular and habitual practice of God to want to and to spend time with people, with humanity, And maybe that's why the word for garden in Hebrew is the word paradise. Because here from the beginning, in the beginning, what we're seeing is that paradise equals God with us. And God's intent was to create the kind of paradise in the garden where humans and God could be in full relationship with each other. And what we've seen is that humans' actions seemingly broke that connection. And yet, God still shows up. The sound of the Lord God in the garden signals to us an unexpected grace. An unexpected grace. And when God calls out, where are you? It's not an accusatory, where are you? It's the loving call, where are you? God is already graciously beckoning them to return. John Wesley, in his commentary on this passage, said those who would otherwise have fled and run away, God is inviting back, back into relationship. And we might think to ourselves, well, maybe it's because they haven't had this encounter yet and there hasn't been this inquisition of what went wrong. But everything we know to be true about God tells us that God knows all. And so God's questions of where are you wasn't because God didn't know where they are. It was an invitation. God's questions of what happened wasn't because God didn't already know. It was because of a relationship. I think it's striking to me what isn't said. God doesn't say to them, get out of here. I don't want to be around you. I can't stand that you didn't listen to what I said for you to do but instead says, where are you? I think this highlights the freedom and the compassion that God has for us. For us as New Testament people, it invites our minds to fast forward to the stories Jesus would tell of the good shepherd. The good shepherd who goes after the one sheep who was lost. And I don't know a lot about shepherding, but my guess is that if a sheep gets lost, both the shepherd and the sheep know it's lost. And the point of that story was there is a God who leaves the 99 to go for the one, not to berate them, not to, um, not to chastise them, but to gather them up as a shepherd would, to place them on his the shoulders and to bring them back home. And so what we're seeing here is some of the foundational elements of how God will work with people, not when we get it right, but when we get it wrong. Because what's needed in this moment is not a scolding, But a reunion. And I think it's telling that God gives space for the humans to confess instead of condemning them. God gives them the freedom to say what's happened, what went wrong, instead of just deciding for them what happened. And it makes me wonder if God knows that while their actions will bring consequences, that a confession and that relationship are the things that can actually lead to real change, to real restoration. I mean, if I've learned anything in my life, and and perhaps you have too, it's that condemning someone, or when we have been condemned ourselves, all that really does is severs a relationship. But when there's this invitation and when there's an opportunity for repentance or for change, that's the beginning of a restored relationship. And so how surprising this must have been to those first humans to not get what they thought that they might from this God, to not be be punished, to not be chastised, to not be condemned, but to be invited, to be welcomed, to be forgiven, to give an opportunity to confess. And I think that this is good for us still today because any number of times, I mean, we could count the times in a day where where we try to scapegoat someone else. We try to decide that what is going wrong is because of someone else. It's their fault. And and, you know, sometimes, sometimes it is someone else's fault, right? Like sometimes it's because someone else has made a free will choice and that impacts us in a negative way. We still try to blame others when we're wrong. The question I want to invite us to consider is how does God respond to us how we respond to others when we're in those scenarios based on what God does with us. Our motivation is often to save our own skin. A lot of times we're trying to figure out, can I get out of this situation without everyone knowing, without having to go through the punishment or the consequences? And and sometimes we too still make, you know, we, we can read a verse like this and and we, can, we all laughed. I kind of heard the laughter there too about how uh, Adam blames Eve and then Eve blames the snake. But I think we still make the same choice too of thinking that we can hide from God. I think we hide because we're afraid. We're not sure what God's going to do. Probably because more often than not the way we've been treated in, in our life, in our work, in our relationships is exactly what we're afraid that God might do. Cutting things off, ending things. Brokenness, separation, right? Punishment. We're afraid of that divine hand that's raised up and what that might do to us. So we hide. And God knows where we are, comes to those places where we're hiding, where we think we can escape. Meets us in that place, not to condemn, but to welcome, to embrace, to forgive, to restore. I mean, certainly, there's there's consequences for sin. If I um, if I find an electrical outlet and stick my finger in it and it shocks me, I can't get upset with God. <laughs> like that, that's on me. Right. I have wisdom. I have knowledge. I know how to not do that. Sometimes we get upset with God for things that are the result of someone else. I think a lot of times it's easy for us to blame God, and there's a lot more to that. I also think if we feel the need to blame God, that God can handle that, and that's just fine too. The problem that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is when we begin to take those things and assign them to others. Over the years, this particular passage has kind of spun out into a number of different variations. It's given rise to at least three terms. The daughters of Eve, the curse of Eve, and the weaker sex. I think each time we begin to do these, we're repeating the exact same things. and We're missing the point of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 isn't about how one is better than the other. Genesis chapter 3 is all about how God deals with us as flawed human beings. Every single one of us is a flawed human being. Every single one of us. And oftentimes what we do is we, we carry on this, this chapter three mindset and we begin to cast blame on others. You know, the reason why everything is, why it is today, is because of immigrants. Or, or the reason why society looks so different is because we don't have these traditional views on marriage anymore. I love to remind people at that point that the the biblical view on marriage is one husband with many, many, many wives. That's that's Old Testament theology right there. You know, and we begin to look at uh, communities and say, you know, this side of the county would be a lot different if we could just kind of cut out certain patches of it. And we do the same thing that Adam and Eve did where we begin to look and say, it's not me. (laughs) It's... Them. It's everybody else. And Genesis chapter 3, at least for me, invites me to, to step back and to not look at everyone else, but to look in the mirror and to say, what am I trying to hide from God? Where can I just be honest with myself and recognize I'm a flawed human being? That, that I try my best and a lot of times I get it wrong. And then sometimes I get it wrong because I, I just don't want to do what's right. I want to make different choice. I think when we demonize others, what we're not doing is taking a hard look at ourselves. And I believe a lot of times it's because we're afraid of how we might find God in that moment. And so I understand how those moments feel, but I want to simply remind us that when we look in the mirror and we can truly face that human condition that we see reflected back on the other side of us, Maybe it's a good time to read Genesis chapter 3 and to remind ourselves that in the, in, the, in the hot, arid, dry, deserty moment that that feels like, that here comes a cool, refreshing breeze into that space. It's the Holy Spirit. And into that space where we might uh, condemn others or, or condemn ourselves, we encounter one who doesn't look to, to hurt us but looks to restore us and says, where are you? God doesn't know, but because God comes and finds us and invites us back into that relationship of paradise. Maybe it's not a physical garden anymore, but into a relationship where it's us and God and there's harmony and there's togetherness and there's forgiveness. When I read chapter 3, I hear it as an invitation to take responsibility for our actions because that's how we can experience grace in our own flaws in our own brokenness. That's how we can experience grace when maybe it's not our fault. Maybe it's not us who did something wrong. Maybe things have happened in our lives or around us. I mean, this pandemic is a great example of something happening to us that God did not cause. But sometimes we run from that too because we're afraid of how God So I want to remind us this morning that when God shows up, it's a cool, refreshing, grace-filled presence. And so the good news for today is that just like at the beginning, God still wanders around in the garden. The grace that we saw at the beginning is the grace that we have today. And some of these foundational things that happen in Genesis are what God intends to do throughout the old, the new, the present. So there's several truths. Humans mess up. God still walks. And the big story here is that God is not the God of perfect people. This is the God of the flawed people. And I don't have to tell you all either that churches love to kind of present this image of, of a community of perfect people. And that's just because we don't know enough about each other yet. To know that every single one of us has places of flaws and instead of looking at that as something that we can hide, we can look at this as here are opportunities for God to redeem and to restore and to bring us together. So instead of trying to pretend like we all have it together, we can admit that we don't and we can find a way together as a community of faith in the trying and difficult times to not blame others or a different community or this person or that person. Find the God who walks with us. So I hope that this reminds us of God's continual presence with us as flawed and vulnerable human beings. Thanks for listening. Make sure to visit well, our I website, citruschurch.org. If us, you found refreshments in this message, us, share it with a friend. And hey, God loves you. Wrong, to help us to learn to be responsible. To help us to learn as adults what it means to grow in our faith.